BritFlix.com podcast. On this podcast, rather than critique or score films out of five or ten or tell you what we love or what we hate, I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie, what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things. Or I get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes. And if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. It all helps. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me documentarian John Walsh. Good evening, John. Good evening, Stuart. Now, we've come together to talk about your, um, I'm going to say quirky, if that's all right, documentary, Tory Boy the Movie. Do you want to give the listener a brief synopsis as to what that is? Well, Tory Boy the Movie is, is this kind of title that'll either get people very angry or, or make them think, God, I don't want to see a film about politics and not a, a love letter to the Conservatives. Hmm. Um, it, it started, I was a Labour voter all my life. Uh-huh. I switched in uh, 2009 to the Conservatives because I was making a documentary with Gordon Brown in Downing Street uh-huh. and it went terribly, terribly wrong. It was it was really um, not the documentary, but the way we were treated. So I was kind of I was seduced across by the um, by the Tories in a, in a green room chat at BBC Breakfast when I was on with one of my homeless documentaries. And what was originally going to be a short film for Channel 4 News because they were interested in doing extended films about candidates who'd switched allegiances, if you will, um, turned into something else entirely. So the film that you saw, Stuart, the intention was it would be a 10 or 15 minute piece for Channel 4 News. They would have shown on two successive nights and that would have paid for my campaign and my leaflets. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So um, when we got up there and found quite organically something else was happening, it became a bigger film. I came back with 72 hours worth of rushes. I sat down and had a chat with um, some some big media bigwigs. And they said, you know, I think there's a there's a feature documentary in this. And that's what it became. So the following year after the election of 2010, the film hit cinemas and was very successful, was nominated for a Grierson Award and was called Documentary of the Year by The Guardian of all people. Mm. And then it came back again in the 20. 15 election, so a bit like a Christmas film, whether it's good or bad, always pops up again at the right time. Mm. Tory boy kind of pops up. And I think for people who don't like politics or think, oh, not politics, not the news, you know, it's it's really a good entry point because anyone who's seen Morgan Spurlock and his super size me with eating all the hamburgers. Yeah. Then this is probably a, a, an equally fun way and quirky, as you say, to get into politics and immerse yourself in the difference between left and right and tribal politics, but mm. in a way that's that's somewhat entertaining because the narrative drove us along when we were up there because mm. we were looking for the wayward MP, Sir Stuart Bell, who'd been the Labour MP for 30 years. So you you have this road to Damascus based that's that's uh, that was 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 that something you were t- toying with, or was that something that 
really did ha- really did come about off off a green room conversation. Um, yeah, I think it, I was I was very um, we were treated really badly by the the, the dying days of the um, Gordon Brown government. I was invited in because I make programs about young people doing gap year or similar experiences in emerging mm. economies, and they had a major project called the Prime Minister's Global Fellowship. They asked me to to make for them for number mm. ten. Um, and just the the enormously frustrating and incompetent way they manage things was mirrored by what was happening in the country. And I think when you run your own business, and I have, I've been an independent production company now for over 20 years, you, you do have, with a small c, conservative values. So even though I, I grew up in a working class area in South London and went to a working class school and what have you, always having your own little business makes you a small C conservative in many ways. So that's obviously a big leap from joining the Conservative Party. But when David Cameron opened up the list for anyone to join, I kind of felt, really? I'll test that. Mm. And these guys in the green room had seen me talking about my five part um, children's series on homelessness for the BBC in Breakfast News. And I, I, I kid you not, when they first chatted to me and they said, oh, you spoke very well there. There was very they, they were young people. They, you spoke very well about homelessness and your show Sofa Surfers looks amazing. I thought they were Mormons because they were in sort of, you know, um, well fitted suits and they were quite young. But they were people from conservative future. And they said, oh, you should stand for the party. We need people like you that have a good sense of the media and of social justice. And, you know, I always found David Cameron quite agreeable when I saw him on TV. Mm. But then I couldn't get the idea out of my head. And when I get an idea in my head with a documentary or anything, I'm always like, I've got to see this through to see where it ends. Downloaded the PDF form online from the conservative website, filled it out, sent it off. A few weeks later, I got a telephone call and said I've been selected for an interview at the Moller Centre in Cambridge. So it was basically a, a, a psychological profiling they do for with you there for for the whole day Mm. and started going through what I thought was a fairly standard process for people. Was selected, ended up on the candidates list. It all happened within about four to five weeks. And suddenly I found out that thousands of people had applied and only a few hundred were accepted. Yeah, that was, that was, that was quite a shocking part of the documentary. This, this, this notion that obviously you were, you were the, 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 the sort of obvious outsider i.e. you'd made the, the leap from one side of the house to the other, politically speaking. And then you make the even bigger leap, which is, I guess, a leap of faith when you first did it, which is, I'll give this a go, they're asking, so I'll test the theory. And then suddenly you're being interviewed for the process. Absolutely, yes. And then you it's up to you then to apply for whatever seats are left available. Mm. And people always said to me, but look, you don't know anyone in politics, let alone the Conservative Party, so how can you expect it's all all these big political parties, it's who you know and old boys network. It really wasn't. The fact I was not encumbered by previous allegiances and alliances and because I was someone from TV, which people always put TV people on a bit of a pedestal. Um, and they tried with conservatives before in most uh, target seats and marginal seats and it didn't work. You really need someone who's basically a uh, poacher town gamekeeper or, or vice versa. So the seat I ended up getting selected for, Middlesbrough, was a strong Labour seat where someone like me, a Labour boy, admittedly from London, went down rather well. Indeed, indeed. And, and, that's, and that strikes me as odd as well, because as, as, um, as a person who you might have guessed is from the north, um, 
I'd have thought, and, and, and Teesside and the North East always strikes me as more northern than when I'm from, um, that, you were, that you were, that there was a welcoming for you. Yes, but I think what happened was when I went up for the selection interview, there was um, six or seven other candidates, all more qualified than me, and that they'd worked for local MPs or councillors, were from the North East. But they'd done that for years. For the last 30 years, they always selected a local person who had a, a, an eye to local politics, knew what was happening locally. So I played my weakness as a strength and said to the selection committee, look, I'm from a Labour background. I last voted Labour. I always voted Labour. So that's not like anyone you've chosen before. Yeah. I'm from TV and I'm within television terms. I'm I'm sort of quite well known without playing mm -hmm. my own trumpet. And I yeah. said, if I come here, I'll be quite a disruptor that Stuart Bell, if he does win again, will have to really fight the fight with me. You can choose a similar candidate that you choose every five years and have a, a usual sort of hustings debate or someone like myself can bring my sort of TV smarts to the town and we can really shake things up. And I thought, you know, they're conservative with a big and small C and their average age in the committee was 74, I think it was. Yeah, your audience, your audience in yeah. one of your first scenes where we get to meet. <laughs> the party you're going to represent as it felt like you were the uh, you were the intern telling people what the modern world was like <laughs> it was it did feel like that you know with, and, and trying to do it without feeling like i'm some smart ass from london mm. but but they all took to me and they they voted for me unanimously i was more shocked than anyone um because i'd had an interview at red car that afternoon and uh, i was expecting to go there but they said to me no if you accept our offer you have to turn down red car and if you go to Redcar, you have to turn down the offer we've given you. So you can't hang around with more than one offer. So I was delighted. And uh, they were able to fill in the local politics gap. And I was able to bring national profile to a campaign that never had national mm. profile. The BBC didn't even cover Middlesbrough sufficiently. Um, I spoke to people at the BBC that I knew who couldn't even find Middlesbrough on a map. So why, why do you think... Um... What, what made you, did you honestly think when you went into it that, that you, the MP, was going to be more of a presence for Middlesbrough than just being part of the Conservative Party? Because I guess a lot of the inbuilt tribalism that you were up against during the, during the making of the documentary where you're asking people whether they vote for you is, is a more wider perception of what the Tory party represents to the north of England, never mind Middlesbrough. Yes, I mean, I think you, 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 you'll always have that older tribal voter who see the Conservatives as the enemy. And, you know, I can understand that point of view. But then you have the local aspect to it, which is the local personality. And that's almost separate from the party. Mm. So the, the local MP was not doing a sufficiently um, competent and reliable job. Uh, as was borne out by sort of independent reporters that followed up on the film. So yeah. people who knew the local MP felt that there needed to be a change. And because it was a strong Labour Irish Catholic town, and I came from a strong Labour Irish Catholic background, yeah. um, I, I was very much the right person to disrupt things. And Sir Stuart Bell, who hadn't campaigned in over 20 years, actually for the first time in 20 years, campaigned with his wife, Lady Margaret. Um, so there was a feeling within the town that there was going to be some change. Um, and it was something that he was, he found it difficult to respond to because I wasn't, again, the, the, the standard candidate 
that he was expecting the Conservatives to choose in that area. In in a, in a way, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I guess, I'm overlaying my my view of what I saw, but I feel like you you were using the Tory Party as like a Trojan horse. I know you've changed your politics and you talk about that, but actually, the the attack on Stuart Bell, which is more than valid, because someone who's not doing what they're expected to do is a bad thing, and your documentary sort of proves that unequivocally. Um, but it must have felt like he, you, you, it felt like you were using the Tory Party representation part of it as a Trojan horse to stalk him. Really, you could, oh, you, you could, you, yeah. you, you could yeah. use your energy and enthusiasm for what an MP should really be doing to point out he's not really doing it. <laughs> no, definitely, and I, and I kind of thought with my documentary head on, had I followed another candidate and saw what they were doing, that'd be okay. It wouldn't be riveting. It wouldn't be something you could charge money for in the cinema. Mm. But I'd never been the contributor. I'd, I'd always followed a key contributor. Mm. So I'd never been the centre of my own films before. And I often thought when I was making films, you know, for different channels, well, if I was filming myself, you know, this is what I would do. And so the opportunity sort of opened itself in front of me in, in many ways. And I kind of thought, wow, you know, this is a real opportunity to use the Conservatives either as a vehicle or as a Trojan horse. Mm. And because it's not a target seat, I didn't receive funding from... Um, people like Lord Ashcroft. So I wasn't expected to to win in, 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 that, in that broad sense. So they let you um, come up with your own campaign strategies, which is much more fun. So you were like, myself, a, you, yeah. you're anarchic with a small a. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> with, with John, my assistant, you know, um, yes, we, we kind of, we sort of made it up on the hoof. And it was more about being liked than about knowing about politics, if that makes yeah. sense. No, no, totally. And, and, yeah, and you can see that with people who are successful politicians. When you see people like Barack Obama or Tony Blair or David Cameron, people can't tell you maybe what their policies are, but they will tell you if they like them or not. Mm. And, and, and conversely with Trump, people really don't like Trump and, and manage to only come up with a few reasons why not. So mm. being liked and being popular gets you more than 50% of the way there. And... Uh, from years of pitching to commissioners on TV, I kind of know when I meet people how to try and be as nice as possible without it seeming fake and getting people to buy into your confidence. And that's what it is. You know, with with votes, you're, you're asking people to trust you for maybe a five year period um, under which they can kind of keep an eye and keep a check on you. But it was great. You know, Stuart Bell couldn't have been a better opponent had I gone to the seat to the left, you know, gone to Newcastle or gone to Redcar, there wasn't as good a story. I mean, when people, I had a, a bunch of lawyers look at the film because Fremantle helped me put it into cinemas and they were like, are you sure? I, you know, you've said this, you've said that. Is this absolutely 100%? Find me other sources because if any of this is wrong, we will all be in so much trouble. Mm. And so I spent most of my time during the edit justifying what I'd found and checking with local and national newspaper sources as well as um, doing uh, CRB checks, criminal bureau checks, because oh. there were some crimes involved, making sure. And it's the people just said they they said oh, I was going to come and give you a hard time at this screening because I have no I'm no fan of the Tories, but I'm shocked he was getting away with this for thirty years. No, that was that was the bit that saddened me. I mean, I won't pretend otherwise. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that votes Labour and. <laughs> I've got half Irish Catholic on my side. I mean, I got married on the 12th of July and I got a bollocking off my grandma for that. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and, um, but 
the 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 target of your documentary is of an individual who has kind of created that. I mean, not to keep the Trojan horse metaphor going, but I'll, I think I'll have to. Is he he has seemingly used being a Labour MP in an area that only votes Labour to just live his whole his own life and not have to do anything that an MP is expected to do. You know? That's right. You know, he kind of. I think he he slipped into a um, a, I mean. I recognise how difficult it can be when you're paid from the public purse, regardless of how hard you work, it's still the same the same flat wage. Working for myself, if I work hard and do well in TV, I'll earn even more and get plaudits and so on. So to be capped, regardless of how hard you're working for constituents, is is difficult and the lack of gratitude is, is really hard. But to not do the job is one thing. To go off and do what he did in Paris was something else and employing members of his family and after them what they did mm. it's I mean you if you wrote that as a drama head of BBC drama would say it's it's not credible it's not believable it's a nonsense so he he really took the mick um he hadn't held surgeries for nearly 20 years that was yet. that was probably the yeah. most shocking thing to me in terms of when mm. you when you began I, mean, I was like thinking okay okay he's not do he's not really doing he's not really representing them he's not this you know and then you go He's not even talking to them. Mm. I mean, there's one thing. There's one thing to talk to them and do nothing, but there's one thing just ignoring them forever and ever. Um, Absolutely. And I don't know where. I, I mean, you, you say you know the flat wage and however hard you work. I mean, I'm, I've worked in the public sector. I've worked in national government, and it's been one of the shocking things over the last sort of fifteen years about about MPs on all sides of the house that the standards that civil servants and public sector workers are held to is way greater than than an MP is, as far as I tell. But we talk about getting taxpayers' money as if it's the same thing. But if I didn't turn up for work, I wouldn't have a job for very long, if I remember, you know, if I remember what I used to do, you know. It's like... <laughs> well, it's, it's the funniest thing, because within the public sector, the, the way you describe it, that's being an employee. MPs are not actually employed in a sense. They They kind of exist in this sort of freelance bubble. So I was told by the Conservative Party, you know, head office, high command, mm. that if you get things wrong as an MP, we're not head office. We're not there to kind of back you up and uh, and, and pull you out of the mud. We're very much the um, the figurehead for the country and the party. But you're on your own. If you make a mess of things in Middlesbrough, it's down to you to fix it. So don't ring us up and ask for help and do things because you're very much separate, you and your staff. And you see it now with all of the Me Too campaigns where people have said you know i've been harassed by or bullied by people i work with if your line manager and your employer and the person that you're complaining about are one in the same um and within if you like the public sector mps are the only people to have no real job description so the only two things you'd have to do Stuart, if you became a, an mp today hmm. is you'd have to in your five-year term you'd have to give a maiden speech and you'd have to appear in the House of Commons and you could do sort of both of those things in, in one day and put your, put your feet up for the, for the other, um, you know, five and a half years, four and a half years. So what, what, was, what would you be, your, having gone through this and seen it on the ground and having talked to a number of people, I mean, it's, I'm sure the, the documentary is only a small representation of the public that you met during your, your process of trying to win, win that election. Mm. What... What do you think is is going wrong with 
with our expectations of MPs? Why are we not bothered? What, what, what was your what opinion did you form at the end? Well, there's two opinions to form. And one is the London-centric one, mm. which is that Stuart Bell would never have survived if he was in a London borough. If he was the MP for Greenwich, where I live, yeah. he would never have got away with this because the London-centric media is just looking for MPs to trip so it can point and laugh and just chew them up and spit them out. Okay. Stuart Bell got away with it because he was in the regions. You know, a London-centric media is a great place for a regional MP to hide from. Um, so that that was the first reason. And the second one is because people are much more tribal outside of London. And that's not me being anti the North. Yeah. If you speak to advertisers, and I'm involved with advertisers quite heavily with programs I make for commercial channels, and they describe about how people make choices, older people are more tribal outside of London than inside. So you'll be more fluid watching a commercial for mortgages or or deodorants and so on if you're over a certain age in London mm. than you will be if um, if you're outside of London. You'll have more of a fixed view on things. Mm. And so that kind of tribalism is across football, is across brands, is across um, political parties. So that that's really quite corrosive. Um, younger people tend to be less brand loyal. So they'll go for wherever is the best deal and so on. But because of the way that the news cycle works, MPs aren't really able to get much more than a sound bite out or reply to someone else's sound bite. So we're less tolerant of the detail now as well. There are less programs about politics. Feature films in the cinema about politics are incredibly rare. Mm. Um, so I had, I had a good old run at it. Um, so it's a couple of things. You know, people need to engage more and they need to get involved more. I mean, I was obviously complaining from the sidelines, but I jumped in with with my little suit on and went and tried to do something about it. Mm. Did you, I mean, it's interesting what you said there about how you're on your own, even though the people talking to you are not seeing you as a person trying to do good for Middlesbrough. They're going, he's a Tory. So in a sense, there's a real contradiction there, isn't there, in terms of how, of how it's meant to work and how it actually is perceived. Oh, definitely. And, you know, the, at the end of the film, the big vote swing that I got, you know, more than 50 percent of that was down to David Cameron. He was incredibly popular in the country at the time. Hmm. Um, you know, so it suited me to to hitch my wagon to the Tories with David Cameron as the leader. And that's a really hmm. positive thing. But, yeah, it, it's bizarre how you are left floating a bit. But it, it mirrors television. You know, when I make programs for different channels, I'm ultimately responsible as an independent company. Um they don't want you really bringing them problems. They want you bringing them solutions only. Mm. Um, whereas if you're in-house working for a big broadcaster, then you have the support systems of all of those other departments, as frustrating as that might be. So mm. um, it is a way of working that I'm, I'm much more familiar with and, and, and much more comfortable in as well. Do you, do you, I mean, it's interesting because it's, uh, I couldn't have swung any more to the right than from the left of a recent podcast that did which was the uh, the skin the Dennis Skinner documentary, right? That uh, Daniel Draper did. Um, mm. It was a debut feature for him, so a very different experience for him making the film than than you sort of uh, extending something you already would uh, a sort of vocation you were already doing. Um, but he's he's the opposite of Stuart Bell, isn't he? In in terms of what he does and what he and how he represents the people, he he he. He unequivocally says, "You vote me in. I represent you. I do what you. I do what you want in a representative way." And yet, 
I don't see a massive difference, and this isn't a, isn't to say that Stuart Bell should get away with it, but I don't see a massive difference in the area of the country that he represents getting any more attention than it deserves compared to Middlesbrough. You know, it doesn't doesn't strike me that Dennis Skinner being an attentive and and very conscious MP has made much difference compared to how little or more Middlesbrough gets. No, but when you look at someone like Dennis Skinner, who's I, you know, one has to respect the fact he's hardworking. He's not a team player, and he sees that as a positive, much in the way Jeremy Corbyn is not a team player. So when Tony Blair was selecting a shadow cabinet, he he never thought of picking up the phone to Stuart Bell or Dennis Skinner or these sorts of people, or even Jeremy Corbyn for that matter, because collectively lots of MPs don't play nicely. Um, and when you're thinking of when you're prime minister, you're very much like an England football manager. Mm. Um, as much as I don't follow sports, I recognise the management analogy. So you want the people who are best, of course, but you want people who will play well together. Because if you're all on the pitch together and you're travelling in coaches and so on, you cannot afford to have people fighting. Um, so you are really limited by who's the best skill set and also who can play nicely. And in the early years of the Blair government, they picked people who were good but didn't play nicely, like Claire Shorts. And Dennis Skinner doesn't play nicely. When you see his outbursts in the House of Commons where he's, he's he points, he comes across as quite bullish. Um, lots of people, he's quite a Marmite's character. He's, he's liked and disliked. Of course, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm yeah. not I, I, his politics are very clear and, very, and he's very mm. open about that. All I mean is, is one of the, the one of the things about your documentary, which is is the lack of support for, say, chorus steelworks mm. from a from a an ever present, ever vocal MP. Now, if you put Dennis Skinner in Middlesbrough, does he he would have been that ever attentive, ever vocal? This is a disgrace. We need to do something about chorus. Is what I he mean. Is, but he's missing that vital element of being plugged into the national party. So you you really needed someone like Gordon Brown, who was who was Labour MP also happened to be chancellor at the time fighting for chorus or somebody else in the cabinet robin cook you know you so for, you so so what you're saying so mm. what 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 you what what we're saying there then is is it's all about front bench and, and actually so. and mps yeah. the what did how many did you say 600 and how many are there altogether 650 so 650 mps are busy representing their people their parties say you're all individuals and you're left to do your mm. mistakes are your mistakes. But in reality, and, and the people that voted them in want them to do something for their areas. And yet, in reality, there is a very small amount of influence they're ever going to have. And if it isn't really part of a general national political agenda, it's going to have zero impact, no matter how loud or, or vocal or, or, or how much energy they throw into it. Exactly. So come campaign time, people are knocking on the door, over-promising, saying to you that we'll get the, the bumps on your road or we'll get you the extra nursery places, we'll get you the dinners, we'll get you Friday prayers, which was something I got involved with, with uh, the Muslim community in Middlesbrough. Yeah. Um, we'll get you Friday prayers at schools and colleges for your children. And yet the reality is when you get in, you, you, you go to central office and if, you, if your government, it happens, your party happens to be government, you're saying, yeah, I've made all these promises. And they'll say, yeah. You shouldn't have done, you know, over-promise and under-deliver. You'll be out in five years. And suddenly the resentment starts on day one when you're MP because you're having to, to pedal back and say, well, do you remember the things I said were, were a solid gold promise I'd do on day one? Well, actually, it, it's more of a hope that we might do within five years. And, and, and suddenly, it, it, you know, so many areas in life, like television commissioning, is set up for you to over-promise 
and then you're tripping yourself up if you under deliver so it, it's really tricky so i try to be as frank with people and as as honest as i could be and not over promise so mm. different campaigns i came up with about bringing a film festival to Middlesbrough I could do that it's the sort of thing I know um, and the Friday prayers thing I spoke to different imams but it's the frustration with politics being so democratic so many voices are taken on board so many considerations are given to those so many voices that actually it's um, because you don't have someone like Robert Mugabe at the ahead of it pushing things through nothing gets happening you know robert mugabe probably achieved more in terms of his tick list in the last 10 years than most mps in this country i'm not endorsing okay i i understand you know (laughs) but in terms of you know if you're running your own business i i always found this on productions the fewer people i had on a production the more we get done the biggest production i ever did we had 70 people on and Mm. it was really hard but we needed 70 people but it was like walking through treacle um, so I think it's, it's incredibly difficult. The more democratic you are and the more you have to listen to the people, the more you get pulled in both directions and mm. very little actually how, did, how, how much footage did you have in the end of, of, um, of your documentary that you had to pull together to make the film? Uh, 72 hours. Okay, so 72 hours. How did, how, where did you start with that as a sort of what narrative? Because obviously with 72 hours, you could have gone any which way but loose as far as the story you wanted to tell. And... I guess obviously you're you're centre stage, and it's, mm. so it's on the one hand it's your story, but like you said, you then as you're making your story, uncover a much bigger story, in terms of, I guess I don't know, in, uh, somebody not doing their job, which is I guess that's the surprise element of it. How how did you manage? What, what process did you go through to make to shape that story in the edit? So you you got the balance of us because clearly we get to see you sort of wet behind the ears and getting burnt by experience and then growing as the person getting more confident in it. But equally, you also show the ridiculousness of this this other person who has just been sitting on his ass and, and being an MP without any effort. Yeah, I needed to try and myself and my own vanity of making myself come across as this cool guy, you know, knowing what he's doing with the reality, which is I didn't know. So there's the, there's some profanity in there. There's a little... There's a burnt dinner at one point, John. <laughs> there's a burnt, a burnt dinner. dinner. <laughs> and I thought, all oh, that's got to stay in there. And, you know, John, who was filming with me, was quite anxious sometimes when I'd lose my temper. And I'd say to him, leave the camera on. Yeah. People need to see this. And when you go back to your bedroom, do video diaries, but don't tell me what they are. But we would send the footage back to London. And I had somebody working with me on the project called Roger James, who's a quite well-known editor and commissioner working in television. He'd worked with Ken Loach. Okay. And so Roger really knew about... Um, keeping things on the straight and narrow and and giving it a, a balanced sensibility so it didn't feel like it was a love letter to the conservatives or that i was trying to make it look like i was solving everyone's problems because i wasn't mm. um so it needed to be true in that sense so warts and all so any criticism we could find on the streets of the conservatives or me any of them they all went in the film so nobody's dissenting voice was was cut away and that was i think the first thing we decided was that any as many negatives as we can about me we should get in there Mm. because otherwise people will think it's a public information film for the conservative party and and we were really keen to make sure that people didn't feel that i was i was playing with the narrative and suggesting that um all is right in the garden of the conservatives but it's all rotten in the garden of labor 
Um, so I, I was quite keen. But in terms of the bookend story, it's it's a bit like Rocky. You know, you're training for the fight, you have the fight, <laughs> and then there's the afters. So I kind of saw it like the first Rocky film where things don't necessarily go Stallone's way. And it makes for a more poignant ending. Um, when when the ending of the film happened, without giving too much of a spoiler away for people, um, I wasn't quite as upset as my assistant John was. He'd gone the, he'd gone the full sleep. journey, hadn't he? He had. He looked like a rough sleeper when he started, <laughs> and he looked like a proper little Tory boy more he than did, me yeah, when, yeah. when he finished. His parents were thrilled. Now, I ask this a lot for documentary filmmakers, and obviously this is a while ago now, but but in, and, and you did get some revelations that I can't imagine you would have expected, but in terms of your perceptions going into this documentary, what was your, what was your favourite thing that you got to learn about democracy in the UK? I think it was the fact that it was accessible at mm. the point of entry. You know, I was able to simply fill out the form, send it off. They mm. had me in. They considered me. I was completely open and honest. So anyone without any experience, but maybe who has a bit of fire in their belly, can stand for Parliament and can stand for one of the big parties like the Conservatives. Mm. So it was really heartening to find that you didn't need to have um, a relative in the Rotary Club or have to give someone a bung of 1500 quid to get you on the list or no it really was a very straightforward and honest process so that's very heartening mm. and um and are you would you have you ever stood again did you ever stand in 2015 they asked me to <laughs> i had a few people ask me to i even had a handwritten note from boris johnson so um the the, the film itself did the rounds in the house of commons because yeah. when it got released um it's and it has a little dvd extra called tory boy the aftermath which is all the sort of the media stuff that followed um lots of mps invited me for dinner and lunches and i did some talks to political parties and groups and so on and yes i was urged to stand again in 2015 but i, I was very busy with other projects and the idea of standing just straight as an mp didn't really appeal to me mm. um and I'm not saying I'd never do it, but I'm just so busy with other projects. I'm a trustee of a major film charity and I'm busy with my own productions as well. And I had a re-release. I was so successful. Mm. Fremantle remastered my original feature film, Monarch, about the death of Henry VIII, which I shot in 96. Wow. And it was, on, yeah, back in the day. And it was shot on 35 millimeter, even though it was very, very cheap shot. Fancy. Very fancy, fancy. And uh, it cost a fortune to scan it in 2k and get it into cinemas but it was money well spent can i say in terms of just before you get geek tell us about the other things you're involved with i'd just like to say that on the one end it's an inspiring documentary about how we can get involved but through seeing your journey and what you come up against both from the opposition you were you were you were competing with, plus the administrative absolute nonsense you got through the people that were meant to be on your side. Um, I can't. It, it's almost like the it, it's the biggest put off as well. At the same time, it's almost like you've managed to do a wonderful yin and yang of like, yay, let's get involved. But God, by me, you might not want to. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a smack in the face when. Um... As I say, people would come along to the public screenings we'd have of it. And we had them everywhere up and down the country. Mm. And I'd go do Q&As, Picture House especially, where mm. I used to do them as far as Aberdeen. Mm. And people came up to me afterwards and said, look, I was determined to give you a hard time. But 
I think you've already had a hard time mm. and I feel really bad for you and I'm a Labour supporter and I feel ashamed or I'm a Lib Dem and I feel ashamed. Everyone and even Conservatives came up to me and said, God, I can't believe this central office know that this was going on and I can't believe they let you down because I was let down by them at one point. So it was quite disheartening um, for people watching. I think a lot of people felt they projected their sympathy onto me, which is which is really sweet. Um, but um, but it was it was like banging your head against a brick wall because I spent my own money standing mm, no, as a candidate, that, that which was, you had was, to do. Yeah, I was going to say that was the mm. that was the other revelatory thing for me that you were doing this on your on your own dime, even though Conservative Central Office are are somehow propping you up, and then like like as the famous uh, infamous burnt, burnt dinner scene goes, you know mm. they supply you with information that's neither useful nor ornament, doesn't get to you on time, which is just blows my mind and. Reminds me of when I worked in government, but anyway. Um, so um, let's tell. So obviously that's available on DVD and it's available through the various VOD channels that are available. We'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, do you want to tell us about the the uh, the thing you're a trust that, that you're a trust for and any other projects that you've got on in the pipeline or, or due to see the screen soon? Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. Okay. So I met Ray Harryhausen when I was an 18 year old film student, and I was a big fan of stop motion monster movies from Hollywood, like Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And Ray had been working on these films um, really since the late 1930s, right right the way up until 1981. Mm. And uh, even though people may not have heard his name, they would have known the films and the monsters and so on the skeletons from jason and the argonauts it's a very i'm a man of a certain vintage i'm, I'm a very aware of them on many a rainy saturday afternoon i've watched them it's perfect real boys films and mm. you know the sort of thing would be on a bank holiday monday or whatever exactly. so i got friendly with yeah, so i got friendly with ray harryhausen i made a documentary about him a short 15 minute film when i was a film student yeah and kept in touch with him over the years um sadly he passed in 2013 age 92 um, but he very good innings and he you know he lived a very comfortable life he he did very well from his films they're often re-shown mm. but the foundation itself has one of the largest collections of film props and memorabilia anywhere outside of the walt disney company with an estimate of fifty thousand items wow um, yes everything from scripts photographs sketches the original creatures creatures that have never been seen before the original molds armatures and so on so this year we had three exhibitions, one at the Barbican Centre, uh, one at Tate Britain, and one at the Oklahoma Science Museum in Oklahoma in the US. Wow. Uh, yes, so we're regularly doing stuff around the world. I give public um, talks on Ray Harryhausen. I did Comic-Con in London at the Excel Centre in May this year, hmm. and uh, I'm hoping to do San Diego next year. And we have quite a large following at rayharryhausen.com. We have our own podcast as well, which I hope you don't mind me. No, no, please. I'll I'll put links in the show notes too. Don't worry. And uh, we just signed a publishing deal with Titan Books. And the first book, which is written by Richard Hollis, the posters for Ray Harryhausen Films, is due out around this time next year. And I'm involved in writing uh, one of the books myself. So that's my, if you like, charity work, which um, is also fascinating because I'm a big... Monster movie fan. Is Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger one of his? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, the seventh voyage of Sinbad, and the golden voyage of Sinbad, the trilogy of... I saw that at the Sinbad. cinema when I was a kid. It got. It must have got like a, a Saturday matinee kind of... Re, you know, cinema, films used to appear... Mm. Like early 80s, I would have seen it, because it's 77, the film. But I'd have been too young then. But in the 80s, early 80s, at my local... You know, like a Saturday matinee or something. 
That's know, it. Yeah. So, so that you, that, that's the man himself. So, you know, Minoton and all those fabulous yeah. creatures from that film, we have all of those. They all still exist and they're all in different states of... Scared me as a kid, you know. It's yeah. weird when you look back as an adult, but it did scare me as a kid. Well, there was nothing else like it on screen. If you think mm. about it, you know, there was animations from the Walt Disney Company. Mm. But there was no other creature features that were quite like that. Mm. Um, so it's quite iconic. When Ray died in 2013, George Lucas said without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars. No way. So, so great praise indeed. So it kind indeed. of puts his place on the um, on the map. And this is why it's great speaking to you today, Stuart. So for your, for your listeners who enjoy film and want to find out a bit more, there is so much about Ray Harryhausen out there. Yeah. And of course, we've been involved in having all the films scanned in high definition and being re-released, which, is, um, which has been enormously... Um, enormously, um, you know, satisfying. But uh, I think the thing that I can share with uh, your listeners, and it's a bit of an exclusive, Go on. Um, we have been not only trying to develop Ray's collection as a museum exhibit, but Ray was very much a filmmaker. For every Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, there was a few films he developed that never made it onto the silver screen. And so we have scripts for different adventures, for different monster movies, um, that we own at the foundation, and we're in the process now of trying to get them made. So, my God, you, you, you give me goosebumps there. That's amazing. Mm. So, you know, um, we are we are thrilled with what we are finding, and it's yeah. um, it's it's an amazing, as I say, it's an amazing collection. There's nothing anywhere like it outside of the Walt Disney Company in terms of size, and you know, it's it's a significant part of film history. Mm. Well, look, um, at Britflix, I'd love it if you keep us posted and you'd be very welcome to come back on to talk as things develop. I'd love to. I'd, I'd absolutely love to keep coming back and letting you know. We, as I say, the poster book is next year. We have new developments all the time. I'm finding new things with Connor Heaney, our collections manager. Mm. Um, and we only have one member of staff. So there's there's three trustees and one member of staff. So we are, we are quite small but self-contained. Mm. But we get so much done. And Connor's wonderful because he helps get all the exhibitions out there and gets the public face of the foundation shown. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Not at all, Stuart. It's always a pleasure. Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.